When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to Slate.com slash Amicus Live for tickets. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of June 30th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll discuss the week that was in the World Cup, with the tournament's first penalty shootouts, the sad departure of Mexican coach Miguel Herrera, and the U.S. set to face Belgium in a titanic intercontinental struggle on Tuesday. We will then talk about the latest roster-building theories and techniques in basketball, the Sixers look primed to tank another season. Miami's big three have all opted out of their contracts. And Carmelo Anthony prepares to make a lowercase d decision about his future lowercase d destination. And baseball, Sports Illustrated has declared the rebuilding last place Astros as your 2017 World Series champs, while Billy Bean's Oakland A's somehow sit with the best record in the major leagues. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about former child prodigy Michelle Wee breaking through to win the U.S. Women's Open, and current child prodigy Lucy Lee competing in that event at age 11. When I was young, I never needed anyone, and making love was just for fun. Those days are gone, living alone. I think of all the friends I've known, but when I dial the telephone, nobody's home. 
Does anyone know what I'm referring to? Stefan, Mike? Yeah, you're just confessing things in your soul, right? <laughs> I'm noting that I'm all by myself. All by <laughs> myself. I was hoping I didn't have to be the one to sing that. Thank you for falling for I will race. always be the one. <laughs> Many, many The Gist listeners writing, complaining about that fact. This is track one of the uh, 10-disc soft rock collection that Mike Pesca is sitting next to him in the studio right now. Yep. Don't believe me? (laughs) Here's The Guitar Man by Bread. Here's Tin Man by America. The 10-CD collection of the worst soft rock is exactly the same. You know what, uh, Stefan? That's what a fool believes. Oh, no. This is what a fool believes. All right. <laughs> uh, Stefan, you're on the eastern shore of Maryland without any soft rock compilations to console you in your time of need. But you did write the book's Word Freak in a Few Seconds of Panic. You'll always have that. And lest you forget, the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. Hello, Stefan. All at a low, low price of nine ninety nine. Shipping and handling. Not included. Uh, in New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca, and I imagine... He has another song queued up for us right now. Well, I got to say, no matter <laughs> what we do on this podcast, the best that we could do is fall in love. Between the noon and New York <laughs> Did you say City. between the noon and New York City? <laughs> All right, between the moon. What it, is, it is 11 a.m. right now as we record. Yeah. You know that there have been 145 goals so far at the 2014 World Cup. How does that make you feel? All of them, all of them awarded incorrectly by a referee's bad decision. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's as many as in the entirety of the 2010 tournament. Even with all that scoring, nearly two thirds of the matches, 33 of 52 so far, have been decided by one goal or less. Close matches. That means drama and controversy. We had that over the weekend. Brazil was saved by the woodwork twice to ultimately get past Chile and a penalty shootout, or as uh, many people on ESPN would call them, Chile. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mexico blew a late lead to the Netherlands with Ayn Robin drawing the decisive penalty in extra time. I would put that in the controversy and drama category. Costa Rica beat Greece again on penalties after going down to 10 men in the second half. Drama, controversy, and there was a guy with a balding mullet. Uh, Stefan, how do you feel about the swarthiest team in the World Cup going I was sad. Sad to see the swarthiest team go, but as I will discuss in my after ball, most of my Twitter feed was not sad to see the swarthiest team depart. Um, Greece plays defensively. Their games are kind of boring, but it's effective. And effective is all that it's about. I'm going to talk more about that later. I was actually, yes, sad to see the Greeks leave because I think we are so, so used to now, a little bit snobby about, oh, everything has to be, you know, Spain. Well, they're not there <laughs> either. Everything has to be lovely and attractive when we watch a football game. Oh, and the Greeks are not lovely and attractive. The Greeks are not lovely and attractive and, no, in several not. different they're, they're ways. They're attractive people, though. I know that uh, you, you know that I have a lot to recommend them. You, you know that it's not a popular team when huge homerism is calling them kind of boring rather than just extremely boring. Um, right. The drama over uh, fairness thing is interesting to me about the World Cup. How about the drama over excitement? Let's put those together. Well. It's my comparison. Let me make let me make my comparison. Yeah. So you've got low scoring games, you've got close games, you've got ones that are often decided by referees' decisions. It reminds me of arguments over the BCS. Isn't it good that people are talking about it every week? That's so great. Controversy. <laughs> it keeps it in the news. But there's a reason that match fixing is prevalent in soccer. You know, it, 
obviously there's a lot of money bet on it. There are a lot of referees who aren't well paid. But the other reason the match fixing is so prevalent is because matches are so easy to fix. All you have to do is just call a penalty. So the counterpoint to that is that you do have so many close games. So we have no blowouts in the World Cup. All the games are really interesting to watch. So how do you feel about the trade-off there, Mike, the fairness versus drama trade-off? There's only one man on the pitch who can, with one action, give uh, a team an 85% chance of scoring. And too often that man does, or in the Mexico game, that man doesn't in the first half and then does in the second half. And by that man, I, of course, mean Arjun Robin. No, I mean the, I mean the referee. And also, let me say, remember we were talking about national character and how the Swiss were antithet- their play was antithetical to national character? The Swiss should play like the Greeks, and the Greeks should play like the Swiss if they were both in keeping with their national character. Now to the pertinent point that you raise. I think it's um, a fine comparison. Like That would be a good basis for an article. I also think it's a false <laughs> choice. Why can't we have competent refereeing and tons of drama? Well, Robin has drawn five penalties in 14 Champions League and World Cup matches this year, and he puts the onus on the referees. He's the number one onus man in this year's World Cup. Onus man! You know, he makes the referee make a very difficult decision. Right, if he were a baseball player, he'd be called Onus Wagner. (laughs) And when you're in the box, the offensive player is at a huge advantage if you Go down. If you fall to the ground, there's a very, like a microscopic chance you'll get a yellow card for flopping. And even that, a yellow card for somebody like Robin, who I don't think was on a yellow card, is not that big a deal. If you do get the call, then you have a chance basically to end the game, to win the game right there. If you're a defensive player, you have to be aggressive in confronting a guy like Robin or else you give up a goal. And if you are aggressive, he's going to fall down and maybe you'll give up a goal anyway. It's just a huge advantage for the offense. Sports, though, react to these trends, and soccer has not really reacted to this trend. You know, in basketball, the NBA has done a pretty good job of at least codifying flopping and saying that we'll go and impose retroactive penalties against floppers. How effective has it been? Look, guys still take charges and try to take charges and flop. It's part of the sport in the way that it's part of human nature. If, if I feel something and I feel like I'm going to gain an advantage, you know, you're going to try to take the advantage. And that's what Robin does. And Robin admitted after the match on Sunday that, you know, the one in the first half was a flop. The one at the end of the game, he did step on my foot. I mean, with Robin and with most players, there is usually contact. And the, the floppiness isn't so much that you're not fouled. The floppiness is how you react when you are fouled. I would say that the majority of flops involve actual fouls that are compounded by back arching, arms thrown to the sky, mouth open as wide as it goes, flailing as you fall to the ground. So So Robin's just helping the referee by indicating that there was contact. And a lot of people who defend him say it's not his responsibility to get out of the way of Rafa Marquez's foot. No. Right. Well, I think that, okay, he kind of thrusts himself into the foot. Sometimes you trip over the ball. There's a whole bunch of reasons to fall. But there's clearly a a structural rules problem, although soccer is the most popular sport in the world, so maybe there's no rules problem. Although, although, (laughs) everyone hates that it's decided on these ridiculous calls. Even the Europeans don't like it. 
Yeah, so in hockey, there are sometimes penalty shots awarded. And by the way, penalty shots in hockey work about 50% of the time, not 85%. And that's when someone is clearly dragged down from behind with a path to the goal. Now, Robin, he did great things on that play on the sidelines. He was out of bounds, kept the ball inbounds. He danced along. He was marvelous. But if he was not fouled in that situation, there is no chance that you would say he's extremely likely to score. He was just making another move in the box. And to privilege this... This area on the field to such an extent is a bad rules. I mean, a lot of sports have bad rules. You're right. Other sports reform. Why don't they award uh, a penalty shot? Sometimes you see a shot that is a direct or indirect kick right outside the box. And there's a lot of tension and so much can happen, but it's not an 85% chance of working. You know, it's a whatever heightened 20% chance of working Uh-oh. if you have a Mike, I think you're going somewhere that, that the soccer purist will hate, which is you're going to say we need to change the rules. Yeah, well, of course we could argue forever that referees should be perfect, or we could change the rules. Do you want the good result, or do you want to argue something that's impossible, which is for referees to be perfect, and then never changing the idea of a penalty kick? Right. So, so every, every purist, here we're going to go and like be that. Americans, and we'll be accused of being Americans because we're going to suggest something as ludicrous as... If there is a foul committed inside the box, the referee should be at his discretion to determine whether the foul clearly impeded the possibility of a goal or goal-scoring opportunity. If it didn't, maybe it's an indirect free kick outside the box. Uh, th- yeah, and there are a couple, and there are even gradations thereof about different ways you could play this. The other answer that you know, for in, in FIFA's hands, is to have more referees. You know, the, in in I, I think one referee per player. No player left behind. In some European leagues, there is an official on the end line. There have been suggestions to have two referees on the field, one for each half, um, or two referees on the field stationed in different places, and they have to figure out where to be stationed properly. I mean, those are not unreasonable um, ideas, just as goal line technology is not an unreasonable idea. Well, Robin should definitely have his own referee. Yeah. I think that guy needs a dedicated man with his eyes on his uh, feet. Maybe one for his feet and one for his face um, at all times. Hey, Stefan. Uh, I was just going to say, do you guys think the Hulk handball falls in this category? Because the announcers were saying that it was a handball. That I mean, if Brazil had lost the match, so they won in shootouts, which we used to think was 50%, but 538 kind of demonstrates that there are teams that have sometimes an advantage, and I think Brazil is one. But if Brazil had lost, it would obviously have been the biggest story of the World Cup, and a goal was disallowed based on a handball that hit maybe the upper part of the arm. Do you guys see that one? Yeah. And? Yeah, didn't think it was a handball. Greece had a much more obvious handball uh, well, against Costa Rica. Well, Hulk did move his arm and kind of brought... Down the ball. I thought that that was a handball. I didn't realize that there was. I didn't realize that there was that much of a controversy. Shoulder is part of the arm. Yeah, I mean, what? shoulder's not part of the arm. Sorry. <laughs> what is an arm? What are hands? What is Hulk? Let's is ask Hulk? FIFA what an arm is and what a shoulder is. Uh, Stefan Jurgen Klinsmann. Let's transition to the U.S. The man comes in for much uh, criticism prior to the tournament, and now uh, with the U.S. having success in the group stage, making it out of the group stage, I'm going to play. Belgium in the round of 16. He is a man who has not come in for much criticism. His substitution seemed to have worked very well. Um, Yedlin, John Brooks, the young defenders who uh, many questioned whether they should be on the roster have performed well when they've uh, gone into the game. Do you think that this represents vindication for his approach to the tournament, for the players that he selected, or um, are you not ready to go that far? I'm not ready to go that far. I'm ready to say that 
that while I was critical of the Donovan decision, I've been, I love the idea of having Jurgen Klinsmann as a coach surrounded by people who are maybe tactically more proficient and that he leans on for advice. I mean, he has, he has uh, begun a structural overhaul of U.S. soccer. That's fantastic. Bringing in some of these younger players, fantastic. Yes, he's pushed all the right buttons so far. They've won a game, they've lost a game, and they've tied a game. Costa Rica's in the quarterfinals. You know, if we make the quarterfinals, it's sort of like a national landmark. It's a, it's a milestone. It is, the, it is a new era in American soccer. Costa Rica making the quarterfinals. Are they having the same conversation in Costa Rica? Yeah, it's the first time they made it. Of course they are. They're going even crazier. Are Come they on. now sort of talking about how they're on the cusp of becoming a world power and staying among the European elite? Or is it just that, hey, we made it to the quarterfinals. This is awesome. I mean, the United States did make it to the quarterfinals in 2002, let's not forget. So I am pleased with everything that's happened, but I think the, the, the amount of time between games at the World Cup gives us an awful lot of time to develop grand theories and elevate achievements beyond what maybe they deserve to be so far. I think that we were probably doing that with the Portugal game, but of course Costa Rica is going crazy, but they don't have that extra conversation of will soccer ever become the most popular sport. So it's different when you remove that from a country. Well, I think that there has been vindication, at least in this regard. Um, I think that there can be a tendency of teams, countries, nations to not uh, switch things up in terms of roster composition, to bring on veteran players who have the kind of savvy, uh, you know, proven veterans, like guys like Clarence Goodson and Michael Par- Parker, guys who've been decent players, but you could make the counter argument that, you know, ha- what has the U.S. done with those guys, um, you know, playing defense and bringing in younger players, ones who are, you know, untested, unproven, 20 years old or what have you, onto the national stage. They haven't proven that they can do it, but they also haven't proven that they can't. And so bring in guys who have perhaps superior athletic ability, bring speed, bring size. That does seem to be a smart choice on a you know roster that does have some veterans as well. I do think that you know you could use Donovan now instead of like Brad Davis if you need somebody to you know provide depth to the roster. I still don't understand why he's not there, but um, you know just not relying on the same old hands for the American team, I do think was a very smart move by Klinsman. Except for that one big old hand who is a big foot. I agree. But we can never prove that Donovan would have done anything. So I think by getting this far, you're right about the time that he's impervious to criticism. And if they win one more game, no one will mention Landon Donovan. But if they lose and don't score in this game, I think it will rightly be brought up. But it won't make the conversation untedious. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, if, if you want to draw a broad conclusion, it's and, and I think this is one that you can especially draw after Tuesday if they get past Belgium, it's that this is the sign of progress, that if we sort of really deconstruct these things and we want to buy into how far you get in a World Cup, which is really a very small sample size, but a highly pressured one that the world pays attention to, maybe not as meaningful on a macro level as we'd like to think it is, but, you know, making it out of the group stage two times in a row, making it to the quarterfinals would be a sign of progress. I mean, you know, if you, if you buy into my 20 to 30-year timeline, then these are the sort of How much does that, that cost, to, your 20 to 30-year timeline? Yeah, how much does your 20 to 30-year timeline cost? Do you have a monthly fee? Uh, do usage fees apply? I'd like to get in on the ground floor of your timeline. <laughs> Can we also just end with uh, a word about Mexican coach Miguel Herrera? A man 
who brought us so much joy. Joy. So much anger. Anger. Vibrancy. I think he enriched all of our lives for the past few weeks. He uh, was not happy on his way out of the World Cup, saying the ref should be going home, as well as Mexico. That As well as Robin. An eye for an eye, foot for a foot, dive for a dive penalty. I just want to hear Mike Pesca's thoughts on Miguel Herrera and all that he's all that he's done for humankind over the last well, few Well, I think that what happened in uh, he's very gif worthy and or gif worthy if you're that guy. I think that what happened was at that one jai. point hmm? that jai. The, uh, nice. Um, that gi if we're playing in Quebec. I think that what happened was at one point he was tackled by a backup goalie, and then he chose to tackle a member of his uh, active squad. So that alone propelled the Laos to heights of greatness. Does the Laos have carried different cultural significance? I mean, that is his nickname. He is the Laos, but I don't know. I don't know exactly why. I'll also say, and this is what the Mexican sideline celebration brings to mind. The guys with the bibs, the FIFA bibs, are always the first to embrace the goal scorer. So even if you're not a starter, you get to wear that FIFA bib and you get to hug the guy. That's, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good place to be. There's a fantastic little gif gif loof loop of Herrera when he was a player headbutting a guy. And then the other guy smacks him in the face and Herrera just falls back in the greatest dive ever. Worth, worth watching. I can't wait to when see they, that. Puts it in the when they were playing the Croatians, they cut to uh, the, the coach of Croatia who's he's just so James Bond villain. I mean, he was so thin and quaffed and chiseled. He's a former player. I forget his name. I do like then the you coaches. Go- I must say the shots of the coaches I find very entertaining. Greece's coach had a forest of nose hair, which was noted on Twitter. <laughs> uh, were you, were you going to finish your thoughts on the Croatian coach or is that it? Oh, yeah, no, he was the Bond villain versus, uh, as I think I tweeted, Bond villain versus a guy who was sleeping outside the theater before the new Bond movie opened. (laughs) (laughs) All right, an update on the Hang Up and Listen bracket challenge. Someone named Reluctant Cynic is in first place in the 99.9 percentile of the ESPN contest. All you need to know is that Reluctant Cynic had Costa Rica in the quarters. There you go. Tika. Congratulations. I'm also going to put in a word at this point to subscribe to our membership program, Slate Plus, which costs just $5 a month. You can do so at slate.com slash plus. And one of the things you'll get with your membership is an extra segment each week on this podcast and other Slate podcasts. My favorite Slate Plus moment of the week of the week just passed was the bonus segment on the Culture Gab Fest, which was introduced by the sax solo from George Michael's Careless Whisper. Mike, mm. uh, looking, for how, it, looking for it. Okay. Well, I'll just keep going while you look for that. And that's not even the best part. The Careless Whisper. They have 150 songs on this soft rock compilation and not Careless Whisper. Mike Volo. Mike Volo. We're going to have to layer that over in post-production. He's, he's on the case. I learned on the extra segment of the Culture Fest that Julia Turner can knit a cap that has any word on it. I asked her to confirm what we're all thinking now. And she said... <laughs> Mike Bullitt didn't even have to add that in post. Can we turn that up? Thank you. Uh, Julia says yes. She could make a hat that says Remember Zelmo Beatty, so long as it is a very, very tall hat. So do with that information what you will, George Michael, and hang up and listen, listeners. Become a Slate Plus member at slate.com slash hangupplus. How much longer are we going to groove to this? All right, that's it. <laughs> Very abrupt. I uh, cut out right before the the uh, the singing. Yep. Oh my God! Thank God we would have had to pay a huge amount in rights fees. That was fair use. You determine the fair use line. That was fair use right there. It is always fair to use careless whisper. <laughs> 
Uh, we're now going to have a hang-up doubleheader. Do you think Spandau Ballet was like, how did we not write this song? <laughs> I think Spandau Ballet says that about every song except for their one hit. Mm-hmm. Which they was... two hits, I believe. Wait, what was their one hit? Well, there was Gold. Oh, my God. It's on the tip of my brain right now. True. True, da, yes. Da, da, da. Yes, yes, yes. But what about Gold? I don't know that one. Oh, yeah, you do. Because you, you, uh, you watch the Olympics. I do watch so the Olympics. They play this a lot. It's the NBC theme song? Or is it used in gymnastics? No, it just says gold. So people like to say gold, you know? Like gold medal. Oh, I don't think this is gold. I'm going to find gold for you guys. I'll, I'll play it. I love it. Right. I'm, I'm the Soft Rocks DJ. I am the Avrici of Soft Rock. You're the czar of the Soft Rock Telestrator. Um, <laughs> let's, let's move on with the show. Uh, we're going to do a hang-up doubleheader on modern-day roster construction and the NBA and Major League Baseball. Be warned that we are going to clear the stands between games so we can get double the gate proceeds. Uh, first off, the NBA. A few days ago, the Cavs selected Andrew Wiggins first in the 2014 draft. Jabari Parker went second to Milwaukee. The Sixers took injured Kansas center Joel Embiid with the third pick. Uh, we also got confirmation that the Heat's big three are opting out. And Carmelo Anthony is packing his bags for a free agency tour. It's going to include Chicago, which led to the concise ESPN.com headline, Rose, colon, won't woo. This will not be the most shocking Derek Rose ceremony ever, apparently. I want to start, though, with the Sixers. As mentioned, they drafted Joel Embiid, who is recuperating from a foot injury. They also acquired Dario Saric in a draft day trade. He's a Croatian who's going to stay in Europe for a couple of years, probably. Last year, they took Nerland's Noel. Kentucky Center missed the entire season with a knee injury. Uh, the Sixers went 19-63 and 63 last year. And yet, Philly GM Sam Hinkie is hailed as a hero in Philadelphia and elsewhere. He's acknowledged that the team is rebuilding. People think he's doing this the right way. Uh, what do we think, Mike, of Philadelphia's lose-first approach to NBA basketball? I think that it's a great way to frame it, even if you don't have as strong a hand as you do. So from a poker standpoint, you know, you, you act really strong that you have, uh, that you checked with, what, a pair of aces? I don't know what they're doing. Oh my God. We'll have to withhold judgment for a while. On the other hand, I would also say that it's a sound-ish strategy. It's hard to both build for the future and also put a decent product. Although if you're in the East, there's an incentive to do it. But I'll say this. If I was the third team in that draft, assuming that Wiggins and Parker's going first, I'd be really, really nervous about taking Embiid, but I'd also really want to take Embiid. I mean, the guy has remarkable upside, as they say. And so I think the Embiid thing fit into who they were and what they're trying to do. And so it's easier for them to take him than other teams. I mean, Embiid's tantalizing, but I am very, very scared of all the stats I've read about that. Uh, what is it? Uh, n- navicular. N- navicular. Yeah. He's also got a lot of length. He's got a lot of height. Height. Yeah. yeah. I heard a lot of height during the draft. Height, height. The strategy, as they've articulated it, or as it's been articulated for them, the Sixers, that is, is that they are not just trying to be good. They are trying to go from being bad to being great, and only great. There's no in-between. And this sounds like a a sound strategy. It sounds like something people might buy into, but it requires a tremendous level of gullibility on the part of your customers, doesn't it? That just trust us, you know, not this year, not next year. You know, when the guy gets here from Europe in 2017, you know, maybe then. And everyone will have three or four years of experience, and then the next injured guy that we draft will be coming into the league 
I'm not that convinced that it's a working strategy, especially when we've seen so many teams, as we've discussed, like the Spurs, that find ways to take the one or two extremely valuable young pieces and surround them at the appropriate time with good players. And that's not to say that the Sixers won't find a way to do that in 2016 or 17 or 18. But there's a lot of deferring to the future here. And what it requires is for fans to buy into this notion that the GM is a hero, that the GM is a genius, that we have a strategy. And this is a very appealing thing in modern sports, that our organization is smarter than the other organizations. The thing that fascinates me is how much this is based on the NBA's collective bargaining agreement and how it really does not have to be that way. And yet fans of the Sixers or of any other team see this as highly rational and a sound strategy just because this is the reality of the NBA under the collective bargaining agreement. But that doesn't mean that on like another kind of larger level that this is complete insanity. The only reason to build a team based entirely around young players and rookie contracts and maybe a superstar is that rookie contracts are so massively undervalued by the collective bargaining agreement due to the rookie cap and that superstars are also massively undervalued due to the max salary. The thing that is not undervalued is just good NBA players, like middle-class, reasonable, like star, but not superstar, not rookie players. And so those are the, the you know, things that make the Spurs win. Like, don't you want to be encouraging teams to acquire really good players? The, yeah. the NBA incentivizes like precisely the opposite of that. And so you have very few teams I think the Mavericks and Mark Cuban are really the only one that I can think of that has made a pretty specific concrete strategy to acquire these types of players. And they do have Dirk Nowitzki, which makes it easier, you know, and he's taking less That's money. And we, and we can talk about that in a bit. But, you know, when you have a guy like that in place, it makes it easier to surround him with those sorts of players. But it's just bizarre that the league has created this system in which good players are like exactly what you do not want to acquire if you're a general manager. It is weird because by definition, some teams have to be bad and some teams have to be good and some teams have to be in the middle. But there are a good third of the league who just have no interest in being good. And that's bad. Um, it's I think that's a little bit of an exaggeration. I think that's an exaggeration. I think that next year there are 10 teams that would be fine with not making the playoffs. Or if they do, they'll say, if they do, it's gravy, but it's not what we're into. Look, I think you the know. Sixers are in this bizarro world that's, like, way beyond what anyone else is doing. But, like, the Bucks, for example, last year, they were trying to contend. And then once it became clear that they were awful, they kind of went with it. And there are other teams that Well, that's what that teams that. say they are. But when you, when you do that— The Bucks were in the, the playoffs other... the previous year. Yeah, but when you do that against the other teams who really are trying to contend and their rosters start off better— Okay, I'm not defining it as 10 teams that have no interest in winning. Sure, if it came upon them, they take it. Look, the analogy I'd make is, let's say you have two different uh, kind of investment portfolios. And one guy is going to build with blue chip uh, assets and stocks that don't have huge P.E. ratios, kind of safe stocks. But, you know, my strategy, this investment guy is saying, my investment strategy shows nice, consistent returns, and maybe in good years it'll pop. And the other guy says... I'm going to go to the roulette table and bet on black six times in a row. Now, 
by definition, 3% or whatever of the bet on black six times in a row guy, that 3% of those guys will win and he'll seem like a genius and he'll probably outperform the steady builder. But you know what? The steady builder at some point, if, if you're doing what the Mavericks are doing or some, a couple other teams where they're just putting good pieces around you, there's nothing to say that the excellent stroke of luck can't happen then. And when lightning strikes or you sign the huge free agent at a discount or you're like the Celtics and some unbelievable advantageous trade, actually more like the Lakers, some unbelievable advantageous trade falls in your lap. If you're starting from a place of, hey, we have a bunch of good players, that could catapult you to greatness. I think it's much harder to say, we're going to be a 20-win team, and then we'll leapfrog to greatness. I know Oklahoma City did it. it. It would seem to me that you had a better shot at doing that with Kevin Durant on the roster than you do with, you know, this dude from Croatia and the dude with a hurt feet and the promise of a salary cap. I mean, all the teams that went from terrible to great had at least a guy in-house who everyone said... This guy really can be great, as opposed to just salary cap room. The one thing I haven't really seen pointed out about what Philadelphia is doing is how much of it is, how much of it is actually motivated by saving money, by having an extremely low payroll. Um, because if you're not signing those mid-level, mid-career players to fill out your roster, you are saving an enormous amount of money if you're going with the rookie wage scale, as you, as you noted, Josh. And... If that is done simply to save money and the Sixers will say, hey, we're saving money now so that we can spend it later, I mean, there's a lot of buying into the promise of the future and the promise of spending when we decide, when we determine that it's right. And, yeah, that's a plan, but it seems like the Sixers' plan, as opposed to other teams that have had plans, feels more nebulous. It feels more... You're like we're pushing the cart down the road. Is that the wrong analogy? Is that the, isn't there some pushing down the road? We're pushing something down Send, the road. Sending our love down the well. I think that's right. Is that on the the soft rock hits of the, of the 90s? Okay, so while, so while Sam Hinkie is getting all of this acclaim, people had noticed that the Suns were good last year, but um, McDonough, the Suns general manager who came from the Celtics, does not seem to be getting the same level of excitement or acclaim around him, even though what he did is precisely what Sam Hinkie said that he couldn't do. The thing that really bugs me about the Sixers is that they actually actively dismantled a team that was decent, like trading Drew Holiday, et cetera, et cetera, just with the idea that we can't become great with the current roster. We need to blow it up and start from the bottom. Like, okay, maybe that it, you know makes some sort of sense. What the Suns have done is take a roster that was much worse than what the Sixers did. And in a much shorter time span, turn into a team that has a huge number of young assets, the thing that the Sixers are trying to acquire, guys like Bledsoe, Dragic, uh, you know, Plumlee, Channing Frye, et cetera. Also a huge amount of cap space and a good team. And, you know, Wojnarowski, our friend from Yahoo, is reporting that they're trying to recruit LeBron James and Carmelo Anthony because they have the massive cap space along with the playoff contending team. It's a huge long shot. But I think that it shows that the blow up your entire team and have no chance of winning yeah. because that's the only way to do it is just flat out wrong. And there's a right. counterexample um, in the NBA right now. 
And that's never, it's just never happened. I mean, right now, if you ask the Sixers, point to the guy on your roster who you're definitely going to build around, I'm sure they'd say, you know, Michael Carter-Williams could be a good third Well, Joel Embiid is what they would say, right? Sure, they'd say, okay, but that's really betting on the come. I love, I'm using a lot of different gambling <laughs> analogies here. You know, even, so think of the teams that went from crap to good. They had someone great in place. The Clippers had Blake. The Thunder had, had Durant. And the Sixers just don't have that. So if they do it, they'll be the first to pioneer this model. Okay, uh, LeBron, Bosch, and Wade have all opted out of their contracts. It really seems like what they're going to do is all take less money just as they did in 2010 in order to attract another uh, piece. Maybe it'll be the big three and a slightly smaller one, somebody like Kyle Lowry, something else. But it does seem like they're going to move back to Miami. But I just do not like this trend of... There's already a maximum salary. And again, the NBA collective bargaining agreement, it pushes players who are already capped how much they can earn to take even less than the maximum salary in order to surround themselves with more talent. Because if you don't um, you know, do that, then it means you don't want to win enough. Um, you know, Guys are put in a position where if you don't willfully take less then even what you could maximally earn and what's already an unfair system, then you're, like, not competitive. I hate it. I hate it, Stephanie. The, the NBA Players Association is in total transition. When the next collective bargaining agreement comes up for negotiation, one would think that basketball might want to look to a sport like soccer, like Major League Soccer, and negotiate for a system that allows teams to exceed, pay whatever they want to, X number of players, one or two probably, that would not count against a more rigorous salary cap so that players who deserve to be paid can get paid their maximum value, their market value. Uh, the designated player system in Major League Soccer has helped that league, and I'm not making a, a parallel between Major League Soccer and the NBA. The NBA obviously is richer and stronger and has smaller rosters and more assets to throw at them, um, at the top players. But for, for those few players that you want to make sure you keep in town, rather than forcing them to, to take huge haircuts on their salary, it seems like it would make a lot more sense to create a system that rewards them fairly but doesn't hamstring teams in the process. Okay, so the reasonable reform to basketball would be something like maybe a baseball system where there are luxury taxes but no real salary cap. I mean, you could justify that in basketball because the last agreement was all about how half the teams were losing money in revenue and the Players Association totally needs to blow up that conversation and say revenue has nothing to do with it. We're talking about appreciating assets and look at the sales prices of these teams. That's what you have to weigh it against. Fine. If that were the case... You know, maybe LeBron would be locked into, um, since it's a hypothetical, I don't know where he'd be locked into a contract. But if it were the case that teams could pursue anyone and the only thing stopping them was not wanting to go over the luxury cap, I don't think it would be really great for us as fans either. I think there'd be a situation where the big three would say they're staying in Miami and they'll be getting paid their salary. So they'd be arguing for the Heat owner, Mickey Arison. Riley on his behalf to spend a lot more money and maybe they'd want to or maybe they wouldn't. I don't know that that would be so much better. And then if the Heat didn't want to spend all that money or said, you know, firmly, we're not going this much over the cap and he could do it, then maybe um, LeBron would be doing what he's doing, going to the other teams, seeing where can you 
give me the best deal? Where can you give me the best offer? Now, it's wrong to not like or, I mean, you know, people will come down stupidly on LeBron for everything. But it's wrong to blame these guys for this stupid system. But I think any great system would still be, or whatever the perfect system would be, would still be a acquisition of assets and a stockpiling of great players to turn the good teams great in contrast with, you know, something like the Spurs have done, which is a more integrated way of thinking about basketball. This is a good place to transition to baseball, our discussion of roster building and baseball. But you have to acknowledge that the Spurs have done the exact same thing. Ginobili, Duncan, and Parker have all taken less money to stay there and allow them to build around them. They've just done it in a less ostentatious way so people don't recognize that they have their own big three and they're still playing the same game as everybody else. Um, In baseball, the Astros were covered in Sports Illustrated on the cover, touted as the 2017 World Series champions. They have taken a very similar approach to the 76ers, where um, general manager Jeff Lunau has said, you know, we're not going to be good for the next few years because we're building up our system. We're, you know, rebuilding from nothing. And so why not just be terrible? Like, we have no incentive to just be mediocre. We're not going to make the playoffs anyway. So it's kind of selling the same thing to the fans. But I actually buy it more with the Astros for two reasons. First, they they did come from zero. Like, Lunau came in and they had nothing on that roster as compared to the Sixers actively tearing down a competitive roster. The second thing is baseball, it's 25-man roster and a huge you know, reservoir of minor league talent as well. So that requires a lot more work. The Astros were horrible on the major league level and horrible on the minor league level. Whereas in basketball, if you just get one or two guys, you're instantly competitive. So I understand what the Astros are doing. I don't, it doesn't offend me. Uh, Stefan, what do you think about that? I agree with you. And I think what, what I found really interesting about the Sports Illustrated piece by Ben Ryder is how the Astros were willing to articulate their strategy as you know how it's not this sort of simple analytics based approach toward roster building or to organization building for that matter that there is this real collaborative tension and it's not even tension anymore it's just collaboration between the traditional elements of baseball scouting which remain valid and were probably more valid in Moneyball and Billy Bean's Oakland days than were given credit either by Michael Lewis or by the movie makers but you really understand that this is a very sophisticated, analytical, thought-driven approach toward building a modern team. And you sort of see how it's a complete bottom-up approach. This is not something that's very narrow. It's not something that's pegged to one statistic or one um, set of data points on how players play or how teams should you know, position themselves on the field, which the Astros have obviously done a lot of in terms of, uh, in terms of shifts on defense. It just feels sort of like a very whole, thoughtful plan. And, you know, even with that, and even we with... We have a plan. It's a real plan. I mean, and even with that, and even with the, the results being apparent already with some players, you know, there's still pushback from the media in Houston. I mean, and that's a natural tendency with this sort of tension between local media not understanding completely something that might be beyond their ken and, you know, and the, the need to, or the desire to win now. You, in talking about the Sixers, expressed skepticism and talked about 
you know, how you're kind of hosing the fans by doing by having a terrible product. You know, they've had a terrible product on the field in Houston. So I don't think that it's so different if you're going to criticize the Sixers and I'm sure local press what I know about Philadelphia have criticized the Sixers like you're giving us terrible basketball. I don't see why you should get on uh, a local Houston scribe who are like, that's great, but I've been watching terrible baseball teams. That said, Josh's point about the nature of baseball being so different, not only is it that you get two, three great players, that's it, you've transformed the basketball team. You know, you have to have a real philosophy of drafting. And sure, it, it comes into play in basketball. And we saw that the Memphis Grizzlies are clearly driven by Hollinger and advanced stats and the guys they picked. Jordan Adams was given a, a F-plus by the CBS Draft Knicks, but the Hollinger stats said, this guy is great. I tend to trust Hollinger versus anyone who's going to give a grade of an F+. plus. But with baseball, it's a whole philosophy. It really is a holistic philosophy. There's no such thing as a can't-miss prospect. So what you have to do is institute a whole way of developing product. It's more like supply chain development. So that's why, that's one other huge reason why an overhaul in a way of thinking is more smoke and mirrors in basketball and in baseball it's absolutely necessary now that's right, said... right you're right mike because you're talking about about training employees from the time that they are either 18 or 20 or 22 years old and are not going to mature and be useful high level executives until they're 26 27 or 28 that's not the case in basketball right right and you know you never hear about basketball someone saying that oh this guy's a bad shot but uh we think we could fix him or the reason that this guy who doesn't seem good is that our particular coaching knows how to deal with uh, a guy who's raw but not great. I mean, everyone thinks that about their coaches in basketball. I think Popovich doesn't get enough credit for developing players, but the whole idea of developing players in basketball is way down the line about things we think about about why basketball teams are good, right? Oh, well, the coaches developed him. You never hear that, but in baseball, that's the number one thing. And then there's also the acquisition, and now this is why the A's contrast with the Astros. The A's have gone out and acquired assets who, you know, Cespedes was seen as a guy who's like a big risk and a big gamble, and we don't know what he was from Cuba. Freaking great player. And they have a lot of pitchers like that. And I think Houston is uh, trying to, uh, you know, follow some of those philosophies. But then again, in the last segment, we just said that the GM of a team, the genius GM who's smarter than other guys, we criticize that idea. Is it less true in basketball than it is in baseball? Maybe it is. I don't know. Well, here are my thoughts. I think that what I really appreciate about baseball is that the economic system with no salary cap and, you know, suppressed rookie contracts are the big value in baseball. But it allows you to build a team in a huge number of different ways. The Cardinals um, have had a lot of success in recent years, won the World Series with a largely homegrown roster. A a large percentage of the players on their big winning teams um, come from the draft and came up through the Uh, Cardinals minor league system. Then you have the A's who, as Bill Barnwell writes convincingly in Grantland, through the first half of the season, they're like one of the more dominant teams in modern baseball history, given their run differential. None of those guys came from the A's organization. They've all been acquired through trades. There's a great chart of the players. If you look back to 2011, how terrible they all were. Guys like Brandon Moss, Josh Donaldson, who might be an MVP Jed Lowry, Coco Crisp, Josh Reddick. These guys were completely, you know, non-entities, and they've all been acquired very smartly. Um, And then you have, you know, teams like uh, the Giants, who, you know, won with a strategy that a lot of people laughed at and mocked of getting veteran players, you know, older guys, 
And, you know, they won the World Series with that, too. And I think that the problem that I have with the NBA is that it basically forces you to only approach team building in this one way. You get cheap rookie contracts and you get superstars. And it's boring and it's not particularly fair, I think, to the large middle class of players. And it's just, you know, not as interesting as as far as a strategy. I think that, you know, in basketball, the CBA was designed to create parity, have max contracts. Oh, that means that the richer teams won't be able to overpay. It's just a lie. That's not something that's actually that's actually going to change the way that players move around. You know, basketball has less parity than any other sport. And that's just because LeBron James does not exist, you know, 20 different times. And in baseball, there is going to be parity no matter what the system is, because Mike Trout is not going to take his team to the World Series just because he's Mike Trout. But maybe it's also that baseball, I mean, some of those some of those teams you cited did get kind of lucky in the postseason. And b- basketball just being a more deterministic sport, when we say this is what works, the things that work to build a good team in basketball, that's going to be the teams that go far in the playoffs. The, you could take a shot in a number of ways of baseball because of the, you know, crazy nature of the sport. I would say the, ways, the way that the A's are doing it with four, at least four good starting pitchers and guys in the lineup who could contribute in the ways that we know are really important is probably much more solid than the way that San Francisco did it, which is like, hey, maybe Cody Ross will have a great year, and he does, or maybe Cody Ross will at least just come alive in the playoffs, and he does. That never happens in basketball. Okay, Green, what's his name, Danny Green on the Spurs last year? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, had... He was hot in the playoffs, but, you know, it's nothing like every once in a while some guy will pop. Whereas in baseball playoffs, if you have a guy who's valued at much less, you might get lucky that this guy will outperform everyone else in the playoffs. In basketball, the superstars are almost always the highest scorers, and there's a little variation on, well, with the Heat, it's always LeBron. So sometimes it's Ginobili who's the high scorer, and sometimes it's Parker. But usually those guys will be the high scorer. In baseball, I say maybe there's a whole bunch of number of ways because it's just a kind of crazy, random type of sport. Well, isn't it also that in baseball, it's not just the 10 guys on your team. It's the 100-plus in your system that you may derive benefit from. And been, you know, there's the NBA D-League, and there are executives in the NBA that would like to see the sport have a more baseball-like Farm system where you can actually, in, you know, create a real philosophy. Houston, I think, has done this with its D League team, trying to to impose a similar sorts of of coaching and tactical uh, approaches to to the two teams. But in baseball, it's so much more extensive, and and I think it gives people like Sig Megdal, the the guru at the at the Astros, and Jeff Lunau, the ability to say, hey, we're gonna we're gonna do something that is organization-wide, and when you talk organization-wide, that's really deep. Um, And when you think about the A's, there is that approach, but also on top of it, there is a consistent and varied tactical approach at the major league level. Andrew Koo on Baseball Prospectus has this great piece about looking, sort of deconstructing the A's roster and looking at how they are predominantly, like in a crazy historical way, a bunch of guys that hit the ball in the air. They're not ground ball hitters. And it's working. So, you know, baseball 
and Billy Bean particularly have gotten a lot of the attention because of trying to find value and trying to game the market in ways that are successful, do things that are different. And I think there's seems like there's more opportunity to do that in baseball, or maybe it's just been going on longer, and Sam Hinkie's going to be proven to be a genius who, who figures out the system and creates a dynasty in Philadelphia. I don't know. Well, if I can tie off a couple of loose ends here, and then we can move on to uh, after balls. I think that in baseball, it's just not fair to evaluate success in the playoffs just due to the crapshoot nature. I do think it's fair to evaluate success in the playoffs in the NBA. Um, but I think you know, the Giants have a great uh, record this year. They're one of the best teams in the majors. So just to say that they were a fluke that won the World Series, I think that discounts the success of their uh, philosophy a little bit. I would also note that in 2011, Sports Illustrated cited the Royals as the team of the future. Joe Posnanski wrote a very similar article about looking in the future of the Royals when the World Series in 2015. The Royals are actually doing better this year, but the the idea was, you know, predicated on their farm system is great, great organizational approach. They're so smart. But if you look at the 11 players that Joe Posnanski cited in that piece, there are only two on the Royals team this year who have a wins above replacement above one. You know, the nine other ones are either not on the team or doing nothing, or like Eric Hosmer are just horrible. Or, or yeah, huge that, that, busts. Piece, Josh, that piece, Josh, was a very sort of baseball centric, and I mean that in sort of just like, hey, we got great players, they got good tools, they got great, you know, they ratings. Had, they from had a our huge scouts. number nothing of really of, thoughtful about how that organization was transformed. It was a lot of, hey, we're improving the farm system, but it really didn't go into how exactly that team was improving its farm but, system. But, Stefan, the larger point, system or no system, is that the Royals had a huge number of highly rated prospects, mm-hmm. and huge numbers of highly rated prospects in baseball often don't pan out. Look at the Rays, who we've had segments on this podcast before talking about how smart they are. They didn't come up in this segment because all their pitchers are having Tommy John surgery this year. So baseball, you know, often injury, often players don't well, you, pan out. And so well, you, it can be hard to plan. Well, you know what they say, when young male pitchers get in a similar situation or in a locker room, they tend to sync up their Tommy John surgeries. That, is, just, that uh, is very true. Very and true. And also, let me also point out that uh, in 1913, there was an article about how the Chicago Wells were the team of the future. 1917 would be their year, but of course, they went out of business. <laughs> Mike, can you play us into afterballs with something, please? Yeah, I, I need I need some soft rock. I got very worked up, feeling I'm schwitzing a little bit here. Salary right. caps just get me very very aggro. So I would just say, I would just say to you is, Josh, baby, hold on for one more day. No one can change your life except for you, and also maybe a good hitting coach. Don't let him step all over you, especially if you're guarding third and his spikes are up. Mike Fuller's toe is tapping. Is it really fair? Or is it foul? You never know. It's on the line. Here we go. Kick it in. All right. And then the fade. Brian Wilson, Brandon Phillips <laughs> on, the one, on the ones and twos. Uh, should we just do Wilson Phillips? I don't feel like they give an afterball. That does seem like it could be like a utility infielder. Mm-hmm. I, Phil, Wilson, Wilson Phillips has been a pleasant surprise for the Reds this year. Philip Wilson would have been his name in the 70s. Now it's Wilson Phillips. You're right. What is your uh, Wilson Phillips, Mike? 
I want to stay in the grand sport of baseball and, and credit Sam Miller, who's been doing bang up work as he always does on the baseball prospectus site and podcast and so forth. So a couple of weeks ago, I don't even think we mentioned it on the show, but when um, Clayton Kershaw had his no hitter, he documented the goings on of a guy behind home plate. He really figured out how many pitches this guy had watched and how often he was standing up. It was excellent uh, fan metrics. So recently, Sam Miller, like many baseball watchers, saw the video that the Brewers put together to boost Jonathan Lucroy's all-star chances. And there was, and I think you'll hear it here, there's a subtle dig at, well, there's an overt dig at the Cardinals, but then they use the word way. Is there a better way? Let's hear this. Yadier Molina is a great catcher, but did you know that he plays for the St. Louis Cardinals? That's right, the St. Louis Cardinals. Do you want another St. Louis Cardinal to star in an all-star game? Isn't there a better way? And I think they were saying, is there a better way because of the much-hated Cardinal way? And and Mike Matheny, the, uh, the manager of the Cardinals, has even said that the Cardinal way stuff is getting blown way out of proportion, and it could put a bad taste in people's mouth. But what it did really was put a bug in Sam Miller's ear. And what he did was he went and he documented every team that did or didn't have a way. And then he came out with the way power rankings. So the lowest in the way power rankings were the Marlins, where he found one quote of the president of baseball ops saying, I can't tell you exactly what the Marlin way is today. So that didn't really rate very well. But in Sam Miller's rankings, the more you hit on what a way you have, the more annoying you are. Like the Nationals way is to be like the Orioles. There's a definite tone to the message Robinson is preaching defense, preparation, and teamwork. Robinson wants those characteristics to define the Washington Nationals. He wants it to be the Nationals way. The Orioles way, oh my God, they, the Orioles just pound you with the way. The Orioles have books about the way, and they have instructional videos about the way. Here's a quote by general manager and author of the Oriole way, Paul Richards. The simple things in baseball number into the thousands. The difficult or esoteric, there is none. And then Frank Robinson, who took over as GM in the 80s, said, I took the Orioles' manual with me to San Francisco and put a Giants cover on it. Such was the power of the Orioles' way. Uh, Sam Miller ranks fourth the Mets because there has been no Met way ever cited. And he gives credit to the Mets. Make your jokes now, but I'm proud of the Mets for being the one team that doesn't peddle this crap. That's true, although I probably think it's because Met way sounds more like a bad supermarket in a desiccated part of town. And then he contrasts. You could, you could do well on the Sam Miller list of ways by doing totally divergent strategies. It's like the Giants and the A's that you were saying, Josh, because the Mets are ranked number fourth in way for having no way, and the Yankees are ranked number three for actually really having a way. They don't talk about it that much, but they clearly have a way. The Dodgers are number two because the Dodgers' way of playing baseball is a 300-page instructional book. Al Campanis put it together, and all the other teams that talk about this way or that way, they're really aping the Dodgers' way. But the number Number one team on Sam Miller's way rankings are the Angels, because Mike Sosha said, I don't refer to the Angel way. I think it's baseball. Huzzah for that. <laughs> and then I looked up, I do wonder if, you know, for instance, former Giants player Will Clark correlated with the prevalence of the Giants way. You know, what I was looking for, is there a correlation? When there's a will, there's a way. And I could find it in some cases, but I'm coming out with that study soon. Will Clark, uh, who was mentioned in that New York Times headline that so amused me this past week, noting that he was Phi Beta Max Kappa because he studied a lot of film in the 80s. 
maybe the most dated headline in New York Times history. Uh, Stefan, what is your Wilson Phillips? Well, before Greece was eliminated on penalties by Costa Rica on Sunday, the land of my forefathers took a beating on Twitter, lacking players with world-class skills. Greece loads up on defense, hopes for a goal on a counter or a set piece or a penalty kick. It's what the Greeks did 10 years ago when they won the European Championship with three straight one nothing victories, and it's what they did to advance to the round of 16 in Brazil. But Twitter was angry. It wanted Greece deported for a lack of artistry and general boredom. In mounting my defense, I noted that Greece's last two games against Ivory Coast and Costa Rica had yielded fantastic finishes. A follower named This Is Everything replied, By fantastic, you mean leaden, cynical soccer that validates the worst criticisms the sports haters have to offer, right? There it was, the word I was waiting for, cynical. It's one of those soccer-specific words tossed around as if it has meaning, along with form to describe a player. He's an outstanding form. You're seeing a lot of that in American soccer writing now. And unlucky, often used to describe the interference of a goalpost or a crossbar, always in an English accent. Oh, he was so unlucky. But what exactly is cynical soccer? In its most reasonable footballing sense, cynical follows the Merriam-Webster collegiate definition, selfish and dishonest in a way that shows no concern about treating other people fairly. So gain an unfair advantage by fouling intentionally, feigning injury, diving, stalling, those kinds of things. Chelsea under Jose Mourinho this past season, for instance, was accused of being cynical because of lots of dangerous play that wasn't needed because they have a very rich roster. In 2012, a Russian news report paraphrased the owner of Spartak Moscow, saying that Celtic plays cynical football based on shoving and provoking the opposition. Okay. But cynical has now become a synonym for defensive, the sine qua non, if you will, of defending. After its eighth straight winless game in 2011, the coach of the New York Red Bulls said the team's strategy would be defend, 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 and play a little bit dirty and cynical. An English blogger during the 2006 World Cup perfectly defined the new cynical. Diving, trying to influence the ref, defending a lead and not trying to score, walking off the pitch very slowly when being subbed. Okay. How is defending a lead and not trying to score cynical? It might not always be effective, Mexico against the Netherlands on Sunday, but how is trying to win cynical? It's not, of course. Cynical has simply become the soccer intelligentsia's go-to word for lacking flair. When we talk about pragmatic, cynical football, we tend to think of nations like Germany or Italy. We expect more from Brazil sniffed the L.A. Review of Books while interviewing David Goldblatt about his new book on Brazilian football. Because, yes, only the finest, most honest, most graceful tiki-taka total football for us. Soccer must be painted, sculpted, choreographed until finally, gorgeously, tenderly, the ball is etched into the back of the net. If that's not possible, your team are cynical hacks defiling the beautiful game. When the Italians played defensive-oriented soccer, it had its own mellifluous name, Catenaccio soothing music on a Tuscan lute, an artisan pasta served with squid and capers. It actually means door bolt, and it was designed by an Argentine at the Italian Power Internazionale in the 1960s. The style goes back to the 1930s in France under the name Verru. In Italy, it came to mean four defenders with a sweeper behind them. It remained a fixture in Italy on some teams through the 1990s. It helped the Italians reach the 1990 World Cup semifinals, the 2000 Euro final, and to win the 2006 World Cup. This was high strategy, not always visually appealing, but high strategy nonetheless. But with the Greeks and lesser club sides in top leagues, it's cynicism. Everyone can't be Barcelona or Spain or some idealized version of Brazil. Some teams have to play pragmatically to win. The Greeks are not cynical. Well, Greeks are incredibly cynical, actually. They're just not cynical on the soccer field. I thought that was great. And I have a corollary. 
I think so much of it depends on the definition. And I just read this thing about, let's go back to Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary, because it might not be perfect, but there's a little bit of flair. And his original dictionary definition of cynicism, I think, has a word that explains some of it, although you explained it very well. And it was, cynically, in a snarling, captious, or morose manner. And I think morose yeah. gets at why sometimes it's called cynicism. But because the Brazilians don't play morose, the Italians do, maybe the Greeks do. The Greeks, huh. the Italians, not morose people. Not right, sorry. Josh, what's your Phillips Wilson? Uh, we've all been watching the U.S. games on ESPN. They've all been called by the broadcasting duo of uh, English champion Dark and good old American striker Taylor Twelman. Uh, Twelman used to be on... U.S. national team, and like any good forward, he's got finishing moves. Uh, he's got two that I've noticed during the World Cup, and I wonder if you guys have noticed them as well. Uh, move number one, which is my personal favorite, is that Twelman has a tendency to get very, very angry when he's happy about something. I want to go to the tape here. The U.S. has scored four goals during this World Cup. We're going to listen to what Taylor Twelman had to say about each goal. Uh, so first up, it's Clint Dempsey's goal against Ghana. Now that is dreamland. Clint Dempsey becomes the first American to score at three different World Cups. And the biggest question was whether or not the United States would come out and punch Ghana right in the face. And they've done so. Punch Ghana right in the face. Taylor Twelman is very angry about the U.S. scoring that goal very early in that game. Punch them in the face, America. All right, now we've got uh, go-to move number two. There was a lot of talk about Jurgen Klinsmann going into the tournament. We discussed it earlier on the podcast, uh, whether he'd made the right moves. That has certainly not been the talk during the World Cup. Here is Twelman describing John Brooks's game winner against Ghana. This is Twelman move number two. And the magical touch of Jurgen Klinsmann continues. Graham Zuzzi with a perfect ball right seven, eight yards in front of the Ghanaian defense, and John Brooks does exactly what you're taught to do every single time. Headed down and headed with pace. All right, so we have the magical touch of Jurgen Klinsmann. A little bit of happy anger there. Exactly the way you're supposed to do it. All right, let's move on to goal number three. This is Jermaine Jones's wonder strike. The opposite of cynicism, Stefan, against Portugal. What did Twelman have to say about this? But my goodness, if you're going to score your first World Cup goal, it might as well be like that. In the right spot, any ball comes out, prepare it, and have a hit. Perfect technique. Pick it out of the back of the net, Beto. It's 1-1, the United States, Portugal. What did Beto ever do to you, Taylor Twelman? Pick it out of the back of the net, Beto. That's the Portuguese goalkeeper. Angry, happy Taylor Twelman there in the first goal against Portugal. All right. Goal number four was Clint Dempsey against uh, Portugal. Remember that on the uh, game winner against Ghana, Twelman cited the magical touch of Jurgen Klinsmann. And the magical touch of Jurgen Klinsmann continues. Who's starting this play? DeAndre Yedlin getting to the byline, whipping a good ball across. The magical touch of Jurgen Klinsmann continues. Do we have a song for that? Or do we have Invisible Touch on there? Do we have any kind of touch song? We're in this love together by Al Jarrett. <laughs> Twi- Tyler Twelman and uh, Jurgen. They're in this love together. So for the U.S. to win against Belgium, I think Twelman needs to develop a third move. 
We know that he can get really angry when the U.S. scores. We know that Klinsman has the magical touch. Al Geronos, we all know. But will Twelman develop something new for the Belgian game? I'll be watching. Predicated on the United States scoring a goal against Belgium, of course. Of course. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. None of this is in post-production. This is all, uh, is that Maison Sen? How would we describe this, Mike? I don't want to talk. (laughs) (laughs) This is all in-camera editing. I don't know what the terms are. One Uh, take. One take. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen. Oh, no, it's diegetic audio. I knew that that one film class at Brown would come in handy 12 years later. Uh, Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcast. And when you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook, facebook.com slash Hang Up and Listen. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Volo. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember, Zelmo Beatty, Al the inspiration. He is. Thanks for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.